Moxtra provides businesses with their own client interaction app for today's digital age. Your app will be a one-stop hub, keeping your clients in continuous connection with your business from anywhere. Manage your team to effectively respond to clients all from within your app. Get your one-stop app at Moxtra.com. How the Federal Reserve is taking on a new role during the pandemic. They're in a position to move quickly when other institutions or parts of the government can't. Plus, the Supreme Court says the government owes insurance companies billions under the Affordable Care Act. We've already had people this morning in the industry saying, look, this will help stabilize the marketplace at least a little on our end. And what's flying like these days? Let's just say it's a lot less crowded. It's Monday, April 27th. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. Here's what's news. More than half a dozen states have started to ease lockdown orders and allow some businesses to reopen. But many residents and business owners are still skeptical about whether it's safe. Health officials have warned that lifting restrictions too quickly could lead to a surge in new cases. Today, the global number of reported infections surpassed 3 million. We report that the Trump administration is prepared to send coronavirus tests to screen at least 2 percent of each state's population. That's according to a senior administration official. The president had said in early March that anyone who wanted a test could get one. But a lack of widespread testing has been a chief complaint among state and local officials, as well as business leaders who say more testing is needed. The COVID tracking project says about 5.4 million Americans, just 1.6 percent of the population, has been tested so far. After getting a new round of funding last week, the Small Business Administration has resumed taking applications for its aid program. And already, there are reports of delays and glitches. Banking industry groups say the website was overwhelmed by high demand. There were also last-minute changes to guidance on how to apply. Congress approved allocating another $310 billion to the program last week, after the initial $350 billion ran out in mid-April. And New York State has canceled its Democratic presidential primary. Our Albany reporter Jimmy Vilkind says the move is unprecedented. There had been a bit of back and forth about this decision. Senator Bernie Sanders has endorsed Joe Biden, the party's presumptive nominee, but he had said he wanted to remain on the ballot in order to amass delegates so that he could influence the Democratic Party's platform and rules at its upcoming August convention. In spite of that, election officials in New York said that they were concerned holding a primary would put voters and election workers at risk. They made the decision to cancel the ballot, which will likely depress turnout across the Empire State, even though voters are scheduled to go to the polls on June 23rd in primary contests for state, local, and congressional offices. The Sanders campaign called the decision, quote, a blow to American democracy. Moxtra provides businesses with their own client interaction app for today's digital age. Your app will be a one-stop hub, keeping your clients in continuous connection with your business from anywhere. Manage your team to effectively respond to clients all from within your app. Get your one-stop app at Moxtra.com. Today, the Supreme Court ruled that the U.S. government must pay health insurance companies about $12 billion. The insurers say it's money they're owed from a provision of the Affordable Care Act. Here to explain is Wall Street Journal legal affairs reporter Brent Kendall. So Brent, give us some details about this case and the Supreme Court's ruling today. 
Well, so back from the early days uh, of the ACA, I mean, one of the things that the administration and Democrats in Congress, who largely were the drivers of this overhaul, wanted to make sure was that you'd get insurers who would participate in these marketplaces where people could buy coverage and that the policies that would be on the marketplaces would be, you know, reasonably priced. But because this was all uncertain how this was going to work and, 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 and how the sort of the market dynamics played out, I mean, insurers had some trepidation about participating or what that might look like for, for their bottom line. So there was a program in the ACA, it was called this Risk Corridors Program. And the idea was that the insurers who participated in these marketplaces would set premiums at, at, at a rate that people could afford and that if in the marketplace some of these insurers did poorly, that you know there would be a pool of money available to to reimburse them. Originally, the idea was that you know there would be some insurers who would do well, and if they did particularly well in the marketplace, they had to give some of the money into this pool, which would then be redistributed to insurers that didn't do as well. But what ended up happening is there were more people who you know had health issues who participated in the exchanges, and less people who were pretty healthy and weren't going to need much health coverage. So you had a situation where you, know, you had a lot of insurers that lost money and not many who were contributing excess profits into this system. So then there was a mechanism where the government under this program was supposed to step in and pay this money to the insurers. After the program got underway, a subsequent Congress passed appropriation riders to budget bills that said, look, you can't, you can't use money to pay out on this program. And so then the insurers sued and said the government is basically breaking a promise here. You know, they, they committed to us that if we participated in this novel marketplace, that if things didn't go well in these early years, that they would be a backstop for that. And so this thing, after several years of lower court litigation, ended up at the Supreme Court, and, and it was a pretty one-sided ruling on Monday saying the government did have to pay here. There are still cases pending against the ACA. What are the implications of today's ruling? Just generally speaking, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the ACA because we continue to have these legal challenges, right? And especially now at a time where, you know, things have been kind of thrown into the into upheaval because of the pandemic. I mean, people are worried about their insurance and what and what all that looks like, and so that in, uncertainty will persist for a while. I mean, this is one issue now that's off the table that will provide at least a little more uncertainty to insurers who now know they're going to get some of these these funds that they thought were coming their way. And indeed, we've already had people this morning in the industry saying, look, that this will help stabilize the marketplace at least a little on our end. You know, there's still bigger questions for another day on how the law will function in the future and whether it will function in the future at all, depending on how next term's Supreme Court case goes. But, um, you know, at least one small bit of uncertainty was removed today. That's Wall Street Journal legal affairs reporter Brent Kendall. We've been talking a lot about how Washington is responding to the pandemic with stimulus packages for states, businesses, and people like you and me. But lawmakers and the White House are not alone. The Federal Reserve has also been taking steps to prop up businesses, states, and cities in ways it has rarely done before. Just today, the Fed announced it would broaden its municipal lending program after facing pressure from lawmakers to expand it. And for the central bank, it's one of many steps outside of its comfort zone. Here to discuss is Wall Street Journal economics correspondent Nick Timoros. 
So, Nick, can you review the specific steps the Fed has taken so far to help shore up the economy during the pandemic? Yeah, the steps the Fed has taken fall into two categories. The first is that they have engaged in huge purchases of government debt and government-backed mortgage securities, which is helping to keep borrowing costs down, especially after financial markets seized up in mid-March. The second thing the Fed is doing is that they're lending widely to businesses, to states and cities, to try to protect businesses and borrowers during this period where commerce has basically been shut down and to prevent a lack of liquidity, a lack of access to cash from turning into insolvency. Historically, have we come close to the Fed stepping in in this way before? No. And so in 2008, it was very controversial when the Fed took steps to backstop a couple of failing financial institutions. And then the Fed also bought mortgage-backed securities. It was debated for years whether that was the right thing to do. What's happened now is that the Fed has gone way beyond purchasing just mortgage-backed securities to guaranteeing parts of almost every debt market in the country. So they're going to purchase or borrow against corporate credits that were investment grade rated as of last month. They're going to lend to cities and states. They have not done that before. They're going to extend loans directly to mid-sized businesses that are too uh, large to get the small business loans that are being made right now, but too small to benefit from some of the Fed's facilities for corporate borrowers. So the Fed is really doing a lot. Nick, you write that the actions the Fed has been taking may have the result of the Fed dipping a toe into the political arena, which we know, and as you and I have talked about many times in the past, is something the Fed and, and specifically Jerome Powell has been hesitant to do. Can you talk about that a little bit? The Fed recognizes that you know none of the people who sit around the table, they're not elected officials. And so they don't like to make decisions that elected officials, the president or Congress, typically make decisions about who gets credit and who doesn't, which states should get you know, a, a backstop and which ones shouldn't. The Fed tries to cede all of that to elected officials, and they see themselves as the fiscal agent of the Treasury Department. They're implementing interest rate policy. They regulate the banks. And even though those are political decisions, they try to stay away from the even more political decisions that you get into with fiscal policy. Why are they doing all of this now? They're doing it for a couple of reasons. One is that they're in a position to move quickly when other institutions or parts of the government can't. And this is a crisis that has demanded everybody moving quickly because the shutdowns happened so suddenly. They're also getting more involved just because of the scale of the crisis. A lot of people at the Fed, Fed leaders, don't feel like this would be a time where they could say, well, you know what, we could help, but we're going to just hang back here because, you know, institutional norms tell us that we shouldn't do these things. In a crisis, everybody does what they need to do to prevent catastrophic outcome. And that's what the Fed has been doing for the last several weeks. And you spoke to some experts about this. How do observers view the Fed's actions? Are, are they working? You can see that for the asset classes where the Fed has announced that they will provide a lending backstop, and they haven't even implemented a lot of these programs yet. They're still getting them up and running. But So without even buying a single corporate security, the Fed has already tightened or lowered borrowing costs for those markets. You see an immediate effect. And what ends up happening is the Fed has to draw the line somewhere. So there are these perimeters. They will lend to companies on one side of the line, but not on the other. 
And as their actions improve the debt markets, you see people on the outside of the perimeter saying, well, why, why are we being excluded? Why can't we also access these facilities? And the Fed has to draw a line somewhere because their law, the law that they're governed by says they can't lend to failing firms. They can't lend to insolvent firms. So they have to be careful about where they get involved. And right now, frankly, it's difficult to know what an insolvent firm is because businesses have been forced to close. And so, of course, you know, if a restaurant is never allowed to operate, they're going to be insolvent. So these are very difficult decisions that the Fed is having to get into. Wall Street Journal economics correspondent Nick Timoros, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And finally, have you ever wondered what it's like to have a private jet? Well, a few are getting a taste of that for the price of a coach ticket. The number of people flying has fallen by 95% in recent weeks, according to government data. As a result, those who do are often finding that they're the only passengers on board. Aside from the strangeness of it all, being the sole passenger can come with some perks. Free upgrades to first class, extra snacks, time to chat with the crew, and even personal shoutouts from the pilot. We've got some solo passenger stories on our website today at wsj.com. And that's what's news for this Monday afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow morning. If you like our show, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening.